The verses I began the second assembly with from Philippians chapter 2 told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling that God has worked in us. And what He has done is worked in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. The Word of God is given to us to know His good pleasure. And I would like to take a very different subject in the second service and hopefully teach us the good pleasure of God as to how we should think, speak, and act in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we shine as lights in the world, that we would hold forth the word of life, that the apostle and those who have gone before us would rejoice in the day of Christ, that they haven't run in vain or labored in vain, but that we are living with the Bible. That's Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 16. Without any way of introduction, or much in the way of introduction, the Lord has convicted me, and there were some events that have taken place in our nation. One was just mentioned, and there were some others, more insignificant. None of them individually mean that much to me. That's not the issue. The issue is I want the people of God to know how to think, speak, and respond to the foolish ideas of the world. And I want to address rights, responsibilities, privileges, and opportunities, and hope that you will remember those four words And when you hear things in the news, when things happen in your life, as you're looking to make a decision, you can ask, is this a right? Is this a responsibility? Is it a privilege? Is it an opportunity? What does the Lord expect from me in this situation? We want to know the will of God. And the revealed things belong unto us and to our children to do all the words of this law. We want to know the Bible. The chapter that I gave you last evening to read was Exodus chapter 21, that if you would take that chapter and read it slowly and then read it slowly again, and then think about it, it has so much practical wisdom in it as to how God looks at events. He doesn't care about criminals. He cares about victims, and He cares about victims' families. And Exodus 21, I hope, made that clear, even with a short, superficial reading of it. But if you would take some time and go through it and look beyond the surface of the words for actually, what is this saying you're going to see a lot there about God's ideas of justice and righteousness, and that's what we want. We believe, according to the first assembly this morning, that God has made us righteous by Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. However, we also want to live righteous lives by thinking rightly, speaking rightly, and acting rightly. Lord, help us to do that. Now, the Bible doesn't teach us anything about the goodness of man. It doesn't teach us anything about rights. It teaches us about responsibilities and privileges, and it teaches us that God has the rights. Natural man is lazy. He wants to do the least possible. He's proud. He deserves the best or the most for the least effort. He's selfish. He doesn't care about anyone else. Natural man is lazy proud and selfish, and we are all natural men by nature. He assumes he has far more rights than responsibilities, and his life is his own to pursue as many privileges as he desires without restraint, and he thinks opportunities are to be exploited without a limit for his own pleasure. We as Christians should know that this kind of thinking is wrong. It's selfish, it's wicked, it's rebellious, though it's part of our old man. In today's world, however, we have to face an onslaught in the news and by any conversation with the average American 
of entitlement programs, selfish thinking, self-love, promotion, constant talk of rights to the neglect of duty and responsibilities. Therefore, this simple sermon, by God's convicting of me in the middle of the night, my wife knows, running to my office to start pouring down things he was pounding me with in my mind and my heart, that we do not slip in understanding the difference between these things. God has the rights, and we have the responsibilities. God grants us privileges, but we're to return thanksgiving and use those privileges within their limitations. And God gives us opportunities, but we better look at those opportunities and measure them by the Word of God because they could be a temptation to see if you're going to jump on the opportunity. Let's. This is not organized. The Lord didn't give it to me in an organized fashion. And I tried to organize it. It's just going to come out. Forget about rights. Start focusing on responsibilities. We hardly need a Bill of Rights in the United States. We need a Bill of Responsibilities. Because nobody wants to be responsible. But they want rights. Prioritize your thinking scripturally. Stop thinking about rights and start thinking about responsibilities. Forget what you want. Start focusing on what others want. Isn't this what the Bible teaches? Christianity is giving. Not getting. There are two commandments, and neither has any rights or things for you. I love the Word of God. I know, I sound so nasty and mean. Ah, you do it the Lord's way and you live the happiest, most fulfilled, most productive life. The greatest nations in the history of the world have been those that put the God of heaven first and followed His law. No comparison. No nation in the Last two millennia has come close to the United States. Not even close. Not yet close. Take any nation you wish that you think their national, in, their per capita income is close to ours. They don't live a tenth of our lives. They live garbage lives in comparison to what we have. We are blessed abundantly. We don't deserve it. and It's going to be taken away from us unless God is merciful for the sake of the righteous that are in it. There are two commandments. Let me repeat myself because I like this point that the Lord gave me. There are two commandments, and neither has any rights or things for you. There are rights for God in that commandment, because it's your responsibility to love Him with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there's a right for others in this sense, that you are responsible to love others as you already love yourself. But there's nothing in the two commandments for you. You're supposed to get outside yourself and love God, and get outside yourself and love your neighbor. There are three persons in the world that God has told you about, and God has already ranked them, and you're third. There's three, there's three persons in the world, God has ranked them, and you're third. The first person is God, the second person is others, your neighbor, or anyone God puts in your path, and you are third. There's a reason that our last question is, when you join our church, will you remember that this church is where you come to love and serve? Not where you come to love, to be loved, and to be served. Do you understand as you join our church that this is where you come to love and serve, not to be loved and not to be served? One is the selfish spirit of a wicked person to want to be loved and served by the church. The other is a spirit made new by the power of God that is like the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved And he served. And he said it this way. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, 
but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew chapter 20. If you are not serving others because you're so wrapped up in your little life, you're sinning against the second commandment. If you're so busy in your little life that you don't have time for God, and lots of it, you're too busy with your little life. You're really not going to amount to anything, no matter that all those hours in your day are spent towards yourself, because God has a right to your time. He's given you everything you have. Your responsibility is to love others. You do not have a right to be loved by them. They may have a responsibility to love you, but it's not because of anything in you, from you, or by you. It's given to them by God. You can't do anything to put a burden on them to love you. If you want people to love you, then the Bible tells you how. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. If you show yourself friendly, you will have more friends than you can handle. If you don't have more friends than you can handle, the Bible tells us what the problem is. You're not friendly. You whine too much, you complain too much, you talk too much, you expect too much, you're too busy, you're too this or you're too that. That's why you don't have friends. Proverbs 18.24 is not difficult to figure out. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Your responsibility is to love others, since you are already infatuated with yourself. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the Word of God. Do you need help on that verse? Do you need help on that point? It is your responsibility to love others because you are already incredibly infatuated and obsessed with yourself. We all are by nature. And your goal is to be constantly striving to love them as much as yourself and to treat them accordingly. That's the goal that the Bible gives us. You know, they call it the golden rule, but it's the Bible rule. The Bible rule is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, considering that their preferences and interests and things are different than yours, so you give them what they would like, though you give it with a passion and a thoroughness that you would like them to do it to you. Though you choose to make sure you honor other people the way they would want to be honored. You know, some of you like a lot of attention. Others don't. So when it's somebody that doesn't like attention, you should think about loving them and giving them less attention, but expressing it to them in some private way that they would appreciate you. Always look at the object of your affection and try to figure out what do they like, what would they want. I want to give them that, and I want to give it to them as thoroughly as I can because Jesus told me to. Jesus gave us his own life. Friendship is a privilege. It's not a right. You don't have a right to any, have any friends. Are you kidding? I want you to think about everything in life. Is it a right? Is it a responsibility? Is it a privilege? Is it an opportunity? Friendship is a privilege that someone else grants you. Not a right. It requires faithfulness in responsibilities. Proverbs 18.24. Did you just hear? I just took three of those words and applied them to friendship. Friendship is not a right. You can't force friendship. Go ahead and meet with somebody after the service. Meet him out in the parking lot and say, I want you to be my friend. In fact, I expect you to be my friend. No, they, it's a privilege. It's not your right. It's a privilege. And the way you get more friends is to fulfill your responsibilities of being a friendly person, and you'll have more friends. But this is what the Bible teaches throughout. I'm not going to preach for an hour on friendship. I just want to mention things so that you'll think about what is a right, what is a responsibility, and what is a privilege. If someone's your friend, it's a privilege that they have befriended you. It's your responsibility 
to repay them and to thank them and to be a friend in return to them, but it's not your right to have even one friend. Love from others is a privilege you do not deserve and should not expect. Love for others is a responsibility that should own you. It will save you from a damnable, selfish, and lonely life. Get outside yourself. Who cares about all the little things in your life? Do you know what the Bible says? Do I have to repeat? I don't have time. I have preached this before, and I'm just trying to summarize it in a different way, the way the Lord gave it to me. And I have put time and effort into this. I have 86 points but that the Lord gave to me. But I've given you the verses before. Do you know that the things of others are more important than your things? The Bible says that. And the Bible says that if you're half a Christian, you're going to understand that. That you're not going to want to talk about your things. You're going to want to talk about other people's things. Stop talking about your things. We don't care. Sort of. I just want you to get the point. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there's more to the gospel than Romans 3.24. Once we learn Romans 3.24 and what Jesus Christ has done for us, Jesus paid it all, now we have to take the next clause of that song, all to him I owe. Well, if all to him we owe, guess what the Bible wants out of us? It wants nothing to be done through strife or vainglory. Who cares what you've accomplished? When we want to know what you've accomplished, we're going to ask you about it. So just wait until we ask you about it. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is the word of the Lord to us. Love from others is a privilege. You don't deserve it, and you shouldn't expect it. Love for others is a responsibility, and it should own your life. If you're going to be like Jesus Christ, you're going to burn yourself out for others. The Apostle Paul said, and I had, oh, some, some, some person wrote me this week a long letter about how they were on the brink of being burned out. It was a pastor's wife of a large church in another nation. And Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 17 encouraged her, empowered her, and the Lord blessed her through it. But I wrote her back and I said, you better be like the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. That's what the Apostle Paul had to write to the Corinthian church. That's a Christian attitude. I'm willing to spend and be spent, though the more I do it, the less I'm loved. Why didn't he holler at them about his rights? His rights to friendship with them and his rights for them to love him more. After all, he was the Apostle Paul. But he said, no, the children ought not to lay up for the parents. I don't want you people doing something for me. Children ought not to lay up for parents. The parents ought to lay up for children. Remember, that's different than the world. The third time I am ready to come to you, I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. That's the Apostle Paul toward the Corinthian saints. Whether you expect or take a little or a lot from others, your responsibility to give is just the same. You're to love and to serve and to help and to burn yourself out for other people. 
The more you do it, the more you're like the Apostle Paul. The more you do it, 1 John 3, 1 John 4 tells you, and 1 John 5 tells you that you can assure your hearts before God that you are indeed born again and one of His elect because they give themselves for others. That is the lesson of 1 John, if you've ever read it. Loving the brethren. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. And so we love and serve others. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And that does not make giving an option because it calls it a blessing. Giving is a responsibility. Rights. Love and friendship. Service. Is it a right to walk into this church and expect others to come up and greet us, praise us, inquire about us? No, that's foolish wickedness. That is selfish depravity. Come into this church and all the way to it and for the hour before you get here, before you leave in the car, sit down and think about who you need to see to inquire about them, to commend them, to praise them, to provoke them. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. Totally different attitude. Totally different thought process. And we want that different thought process. Anything you are or have is from God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He didn't consult you. You don't have any rights. He, you're the clay. How much right you, are you going to give the clay in a bucket of mud as you're sitting at a spinning wheel? You going to let them lie down on your front lawn and keep you from driving out of your driveway? Or are you going to drive right over them? What are you going to do with the clay when it barks against the potter? God is the potter and we are the clay. Whatever you are, whatever you have, whatever you aren't, and whatever you don't have, God made the difference. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Do you know the answer to that difficult question? You know, all the little children in here, when they reach about 18 months old, I'll say, who made you? And they should, or maybe 24 months. If they've stuck their finger in too many wall sockets, it might be 30 months. Who made you? God did. Okay, do you know the answer to this question? For who maketh thee to differ from another? Does the Apostle Paul get right down to a childlike level with us? For who maketh thee to differ from another? God did. He has the rights to make you any way he chooses to, and he has exercised them. He has exercised who he gave you as parents, your gene package, your DNA, the nation you were born in, the generation that you were born in, your height, your weight, your propensity to either be lean-tissued, fat-tissued, or muscular-tissued, the opportunities in your life, your intellectual ability, coordination in playing dodgeball in junior high, every single one of those aspects of your life, the God of heaven made you to differ from another. Every single one of you is a unique snowflake, and God made you the way you are. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? What do you have that you've accumulated in your life that God didn't give you as a gift? How much of it do you think you've pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps? You ain't even got bootstraps and you ain't got the strength to pull on them. I'm asking you a question. The Apostle Paul's asking us a question with the second sentence of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? You don't have anything that you didn't receive as a benefit, blessing, and gift by the God of heaven. Now, if thou didst receive it, if God gave it to you as a gift, and he has all the rights, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Why do you glory about anything in your life as if it's something you've accomplished? Because anything you've accomplished 
is by the grace and mercy and gift of God. Anything. Anything you are. Anything you have. Is God's choice. He may, he's got the rights. And anything he's given you is a privilege. Act like it. Do you know how we act like it? We answer these questions quickly. God made it. God made the choice. Whether the thing's good or bad, God made the choice. He's got the rights. I've got the responsibilities to thank him in everything because that's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning me. That's my responsibility. Being born without defects, that's not a right. Being born without birth defects, do you think that's a right? It's God's right to make you with birth defects. You know, God has the right to send you straight to hell from the moment of conception because that's what your parents said they wanted for their grandchild with your name. That's what Adam and Eve said. If I take you to Isaiah 45 and verse 9 recently where it says, if you want to bark against your maker, you should not enter into a conversation with him about the fact that he made you without arms. You should go find another pot shirt to argue with. Did you like that passage? Do you still like it? Isaiah 45, verse 9, so. You know, don't you argue against your maker. He's got the rights. If you want to argue, then go pick another piece of potsherd and argue with it. Do you know what a potsherd is? It's a broken piece of pottery because you don't argue with the potter. You just argue with the other broken piece of pottery that's been thrown over in the corner that they're going to smash into oblivion, add water to, and make into mud again. And if you want to argue, then you argue with that. Is that what the Bible says? Am I, am I exaggerating the point? No arms. He's got no arms. Your two legs working? Your two arms working? Your two eyes working? What, do you have a right to them? No, you have a responsibility right now to thank God for everything you've got that works. All those little helpless situations, and those of you that are taking medical, very various medical programs, you run into some of these cases. The God of heaven made those choices. God is your potter, and you're the clay. Don't argue against Him. You were not made for you. Do we understand that? You were not made for you. God didn't make you for your pleasure. God made you for His pleasure. Do you understand that? This is how we approach life. This is how we approach decisions. This is how we approach what we've got, what we aren't. What we are, what we don't have, what we want, what we're going to do, what, what is the purpose for my life? How do I find fulfillment? God made you for Him. And the Bible teaches us that so clearly. We've been taught it so many times. The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Thou, shalt, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. And for Thy pleasure they are and were created. God did not create you for you. You don't have rights, you have responsibilities. God created you for Him. And he's given you responsibilities to fulfill his rights in your life. And that is to get you to love him. He has the right to your love. He is your creator. And if you're a child of God in this assembly with me, he is your savior. Do you want three reasons from 1 Corinthians chapter 6? I'm sorry I have rationed to you true theology. I picked on some others this morning, but I have rationed to you true theology. There's three reasons in 1 Corinthians 6 that you owe him everything. First, God created you. Second, Jesus Christ bought you. Third, God's living in you. You know, we kind of passed over that a little too quickly. For those three reasons, you owe him everything. What? What did the apostles say? What? It's kind of rude, isn't it, to say that? What? What? Let's never say a single thing, inside, outside, 
or even allow someone else to say it, that would get the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit to say what? Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies, which are God's. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. There's some responsibilities. And God has some rights. How does he have the rights? He created you. He bought you. He's in you. Don't take me places I don't want to go. I love the Bible. I love the Bible. It's that simple. Don't take me places I don't want to go. What's the place in that passage? The local convenience store where you buy a pack of cigarettes and on the way home you smoke one of them? You know, I was taught that for 20 years. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. Don't you dare smoke. And the person that's usually telling you that eats cherry pie two or three times a day with ice cream a la mode. You know, what ridiculous hypocrisy. A cigarette's far better for you than that ice cream and cherry pie. Find out by asking the guy who ate cherry pie first, then quit and started smoking what happened to his body weight. And the, and the person that smoked first and then quit and started eating cherry pie, what happened to his body weight? And you'll get the answer to my wild statement. You were not made for you. You were made for him. Get used to it. Like it. Isn't that the truth of God's word? Jesus said God and He had the right to do what He would with His own. Does it say that in the Bible? Do not I have the right to do what I will with my own? Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. He, The Lord compared Himself. He said the kingdom of heaven is like this. A king went out into the marketplace or a lord went out into a marketplace and hired some at 6 o'clock in the morning and put them to work and said, I'll pay you what's fair. They agreed. They trusted Him. You'd pay Him what's fair. He went out at 9, he went out at 12, he went out at 3, and he went out at 5. 5 o'clock, one hour before quitting time. And hired some more to go work in his vineyard. And when they all came in, they lined up for payday. They were day laborers. The Lord passed out a penny to each of them. Some had borne the heat of the day for 12 hours, and some had only worked for one hour. I, I hope you really... Now listen, I don't want to get off track here, because what I want to get on is the verse that's verse 15 that says, Do not I have the right to do what I will with my own? But while we're here, let me just tell you something. Do you know, do you know which ones you are? By the grace of God? Now, you were, you were hired at five o'clock and you only worked one hour and yet you got full pay. Do you know who got hired at six o'clock in the morning? The Jews. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I like that. <laughs> anyway, that's, that was just a side point. The real point is he has the right to do with his own as he will. Right. And he says that. I look, some of you are looking at me like, does Jesus really talk that way? Yes, he does. Amen. Yes, he does. He's got the rights and you've got the responsibilities. Matthew 20, verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Why are you getting upset at me because I'm paying somebody I hired at five a penny? You agreed with me you'd work 12 hours for a penny. Why are you angry at me? This is how we want to learn to think so that God's never angry. We don't want to be angry with God. And we don't want God to be angry with us. We have responsibilities and He's got the rights. Lord, teach us these things and teach them to us clearly. God has all the rights for mercy or compassion. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, because it seemed good in thy sight. Are those his rights? If you ever hear the truth, what is it? Out of the four words I gave you. It's a privilege. Rights, responsibilities, privileges, and opportunities. It's an opportunity, too. But I'm going to use the word opportunity a little differently. It's a privilege. If you ever hear the truth, it's a privilege. If you love the truth, it's a privilege. Because God has put it there. But then what does he want you to do with that truth and that love of the truth that he's put in you and given to you? He's given you a responsibility to exercise yourself for it even further. God has all the rights. Does he have the right to take one family out of Israel? Out of all the tribes, he chose Judah. Out of all the tribes of Judah, he chose Jesse's family. Out of all of Jesse's sons, and there were eight of them, he chose the runt to be king of Israel. Does he have the right to do that? Did David appreciate that right? Because he liked me. And of all my sons, and David had to admit because of his polygamous marriages, and I have many sons, out of all my sons, he chose Solomon. First Chronicles chapter 28, God has all the rights to do what he will with the world's greatest empire. Look at Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah chapter 27. The world's greatest empire in the estimation of the king of kings. Jeremiah chapter 27. I may not get very far. I may be a huge disappointment to you that we're looking for more. But brethren, we got to we have, we must remind ourselves and our children how to think. Especially in this day and time where there's so many entitlement programs, selfish thinking, rights being put over responsibilities, self-love as being, self-love as being the greatest love of all. That is perverse, sick, twisted, corrupt, upside down, totally contrary to the Word of God. Look at Jeremiah 27.5. I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. I have all the rights. Verse 6. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. He's got all the rights. Verse 7. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son. I've made it a dynasty. Until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. Do you want to know how the world gets along? Do you want to know about world history? It's right there. I raised up Nebuchadnezzar. He's my servant. I've made him the king of kings and he whipped the whole earth. But as soon as I'm done with him, his son and his son's son, then I'm going to let the other nations whip him in return. And Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede came in and took the kingdom in one night. Impregnable Babylon. The queen that thought she would sit a city forever. The city that thought she would sit a queen forever. Are you able to take interpret for me, please? Be my translators. He's a potter in the matters of eternal life, Romans chapter 9. He will judge you for every thought, word, and deed, Second Chronicles, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Election to salvation is a privilege, but it brings responsibilities with it. What has God saved us for? Didn't we already read that in Philippians chapter 2? God's worked in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. What is our response? Is it a right or is it a responsibility to work that salvation out with fear and trembling? Are we not bound when it says... We are bound to give thanks always to God. Is that a right or a responsibility? That's a responsibility. God's given us a privilege of salvation. What is the greatest love in the world? 
Is it love for yourself as the world sings? Really? The greatest love of all is God's love for His Son and His people through that Son. And then it is their love for Him and His Son. And then it is their love for others that are in the Son. That's the greatest love of all. Get things right. Not rights. Get your thinking right. Not rights. Let me take an aside here. Do you all know your brother Jeff Oley? I'm going to go ahead and name him. The man has a twisted sense of humor. He has a twisted way of looking at the Scriptures, a twisted way that I love and have loved for a long time, although every time he comes to me and tells me that you need to remember this point when you get up there and preach your second assembly, that I'm wondering with bated breath for, the, for him to get to his bottom line. He said, when you get up there and you preach about rights, responsibilities, privileges, and opportunities, don't you dare forget children's rights. You know, he says it so serious and his face is so poker-faced. I'm thinking, okay, what's the brother going to lay on me? Children's rights. It's going to be hard for me to preach children's rights after my outline. What is he going to say? I want you to get up there and preach children's rights. You start with Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Amen. <laughs> you know what? It is right. right. It's not your right to violate that rule. By twisted children, I just meant it's different. It's always interesting. I wish he could start with the bottom line so that I could handle the lead up to it a little better. I love it. I, I actually loved it. I told a couple of you before I could make it from him to my, oh, my notes. That deserves to be repeated. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Is suicide a right? Of course not. It's self-murder. Your life is not your own. God gave you your life, and He and He alone determines the beginning and the end of it. It's my life. Ever heard those words? It's my life. No, it is not your life. Jehovah created you for Himself even if He uses you as cordwood for the lake of fire. Fall on your face and thank Him for the privilege of living in His universe. And then get up cheerfully with zeal to think, say, and do everything He has commanded you. It's my life. No, it isn't your life. And any child in here that says it to a parent, may you rot in this world and the next. And I'm sure that God will take care of my prayer. It is not your life. God gave you your life. He is your creator. Your life is His. And He gave you the set of parents that He has given you. And it is your duty to obey them. He chose. He handpicked. He heart-picked. He carefully picked. With infinite wisdom. Out of all the couples on the planet. All the conceiving mothers on the planet. He chose yours for you. It was His right to do so. And He exercised His right. And He wants you to exercise your responsibility. to Give Him praise and glory. It's my life. No, it is not. Especially if you're a child of God. Let me take you back to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. It's not your life because He made you. It's not your life because He bought you. It's not your life because He's in you. Are those three good enough reasons for you to give Him your life? Your life is not your own. Don't you know these simple facts? You're not your own. It's my body. Anyone ever say that? It's my body. No, it is not. God created it for Himself. Jesus Christ bought it for Himself, and the Holy Ghost is in it. 
If you're a child of God, read 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 and shut up. It's not your body. It's the temple of the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your body. Don't involve it in anything that is morally wrong. Whether you eat cherry pie or puff on a stick of tobacco from time to time isn't the issue in 1 Corinthians 6. It's that you would ever take the Holy Ghost and the blood-bought possession of Jesus Christ and the created possession of God Almighty and associate it with a whore. That's the context and that's the lesson of that passage. It's my room. Oh, when the Lord gave me that one, because I've heard it before. It's my room. No, it is not. You haven't paid a single cent for anything in it, under it, around it, or on it, including the HVAC, the switch on the wall, the window in the wall, the window in the wall, the fixture on the ceiling, the clothing in it, the bedding in it, the bed, the trash basket. Shut up and thank your parents for the privilege of having a room. It's not your room. The best thing that you can ever do to teenage boys, rip the door. Not You don't rip it because you don't want to waste any money on them. They're not worth it. Take the door off its hinges and put it in the garage or the attic. Let them be reminded that it's not their room. Do it to teenage girls, too, that think that's their private retreat where they can go and hide in rebellion and listen to rock and roll music and foment hatred in their hearts against their parents. Listen, when I find in the Bible that a family went to bed, they went to bed. They went to bed. (laughs) The same bed. Remember? I'm in bed with my children. See, I can't imagine anybody would do that. Those were small houses back then, of course. Do you think that everybody in the history of the world has lived in 3,000 square foot houses like we have today? Hello? Hello, I'm in bed with my children. You say, well, how would you ever do it? It would just add to the excitement. Just forget it and try, and try to figure it out on your own. Listen, you two would be smiling at each other in the dark and you'd both know it. Shut up and thank your parents for the privilege of having a room. You haven't earned enough in your lifetime to date to pay for having the house for just one month. Rights. It's my room. Hello? Hello, was it your room when we had to change your diaper eight times a day, every three hours, like clockwork? When we had to put you in a cage and had to tie those diapers on and use giant pins to keep them attached so that you wouldn't eat what was in them? Was it your room then? Was it your room when we came and nursed you like a little cat nurses its little kittens? It's my room. No, it isn't. You don't have a right to privacy. You don't have a right to anything. You have a responsibility to be obedient to your parents. And if you lived in, if you lived in a godly way, you can have a door on its hinges, and a parent doesn't even have to worry about it because they know what's going on inside is the same as what's going on outside. You're fearing God, and you're obeying and honoring them. Right. My brethren, are these things said? It's my life. It's my body. It's my room. This is not the way Christians talk or think, and we can't allow it in our homes, and we've got to teach it. Food is not a right. Eating is a privilege if you earn it. Does the Bible say, This we commanded you when we were with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that if man would not work, 
Neither should he eat. Eating is not a right. Food is not a right. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4. He that will not plow by reason of the coal in harvest, he shall beg and have how much? A sandwich? A little bit? Meager portion? He that will not plow by reason of the cold in the day of harvest, he shall have nothing. He shall beg and have nothing. He'll beg and have nothing. This is the Word of God. Food is not a right. Food is a privilege. And it's earned by working hard. How about a man who wastes it? Proverbs chapter 13 and 23, There is much food in the tillage of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. There is, this, there is that is destroyed for want of judgment. And he that is a waster is brother to him that is slothful. They're all in the same family and they don't deserve. Food is not a privilege. I mean, eating is a privilege if you earn it, but food is not a right. A job is not a right. Either to get one or to keep one. Right to work laws? Are you kidding me? A job is not a right. A job is a privilege of someone else wasting their capital on employing you, you sorry thing. It's a privilege to have a job. Do you know what that means tomorrow when you go to work? Go into whoever's over you in responsibility, a supervisor, a manager, and thank them for your job. It'll change your attitude about your job. Employment is a privilege, not a right. A job is not a right. Either to get one or to keep one. Forget it. A job is not a right. It's a responsibility to work hard. God has told us in the Bible that He knows all about jobs and employment. Bond slaves and freemen. And His advice is the same to all of them. Don't answer back. Show all good fidelity. Submit yourself. Do everything you do cheerfully as unto the Lord, whether anyone's watching or not. Obey them in everything they ask. Until they want you to kiss Buddha and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And until they are onerous and overbearing and difficult and don't keep their promises, you can't even do anything that's thankworthy, in my opinion. This is what the Lord said in First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Until they're a froward master, you can't even show anything worth praise. Right to work? Forget it. You have a responsibility to work hard today and tomorrow and the next day. That's what God teaches in the Bible. Six days shalt thou labor. Does that sound like a right or a responsibility? It depends. If your attitude is right and you take the responsibility on as doing it as unto the Lord, it sounds like it's a privilege to have a job and to go serve. Tell, tell your master that. Tell the Lord that. Right to work? You've got the right to quit. As long as you give a notice fitting for your level of responsibility in that company. <laughs> you don't even have the right to quit. Now, I've, I've preached that one for 25 years. The right to work, you have the right to quit. You don't even have the right to quit unless you quit under terms that are agreeable to them. Hey, thank you, Lord, for the additional light on employment. Right Right to good working conditions? You have a right to good working conditions. If you don't like the working conditions, quit. Build your own factory and have better conditions for the people that you're going to employ. That's all you have to do. Then you can have better working conditions. They are the responsibility of masters. The Bible does tell masters to take care of their servants within, within limits. Now you found in Exodus chapter 21 that those limits are kind of loose. Could you beat a servant? Could you beat a servant that died 48 hours later? 
As a master, were you free? Yes. Do you know what that makes in the way of a workforce? Very productive and obedient. (laughs) It works. You can imagine it would work. You'd want Monday morning at 6 o'clock to come on Sunday night at 6 o'clock. You couldn't wait to get to work. If you knew if you didn't get the job done, you might get a beating. And the master would just hold back enough so that you could last 36 hours. And if you lasted 36 hours and then died, he was free. Because the Lord knew a master would not beat his own property. No man has ever destroyed his own assets. And if you work hard, you're an asset. If you don't work hard, then read Exodus 21 and learn how to work hard. Good working conditions are the responsibility of masters within the constraints of affordability, availability, profitability, marketability, and desirability. If he's got people that will work in less than what you think, that's your problem. You don't need a job. Go build your own factory. Did you all understand Exodus 21 when it said, if a master beat his servant and he died then, that the master was to be put to death? Because that means he stood right there and beat him to death. And he was to die. But if he beat him, and he lasted for a couple of days, then obviously the man hadn't beaten him to death on the spot. And he wouldn't have destroyed good property, so it was probably a fit punishment. Okay? Now, while he was beating him, he misses and he gouges his eyeball out. Did you, know, did you notice that there was care in the beating? Right. I love Exodus 20. I love Romans 3, and I love Exodus 21, and everything in between. Amen. And what's sandwiched around it? If he gouged his eyeball out, what did he have to do? Let him go free, because he had taken something valuable. Because taking a man's pride and the skin off his back is not valuable. Was it all there? Yep. What, if he, what if he missed... In one of his blows and knocked out his tooth. When there weren't orthodontists and dentists, what happened if you lost one tooth? Then the rest are going to shift around. You're going to have a messed up mouth. Had to let him go free. I love Exodus 21. Did you read it carefully enough? Is it? There's so much more than was in the Sunday school papers. You know how, you know how we put all this into practice? We go to work tomorrow and we work like Christians. We work hard. We work faithfully. We're thankful. We thank the boss. We thank the Lord. Medical care is not a right. It's a privilege. You don't have the right to a doctor. Unless you can afford one. That includes God making means for you to afford one. But having a doctor is not a right. Where in the world do you think that came from? You say, what about the Good Samaritan? Oh, that was the right of the wounded Jew. I wonder why he didn't fight for his rights when the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side of the road. Why didn't he write a petition to the Humane Society or to PETA or the UN or to NOW? It wasn't a right of the wounded Jew to have the Good Samaritan stop. The entire lesson was... Who is the neighbor of a man? And it was the good Samaritan that did what was good 
by loving his neighbor as himself and fulfilling the law of God. He fulfilled his responsibilities, and the entire lesson is about the responsibilities of the Good Samaritan. And when God puts someone in our way that's wounded, we will take care of them because we're going to fulfill our responsibilities, but it's not the right of the wounded person to demand that of us or to expect it. Right to insurance? Are you kidding? Insurability is a privilege granted by the man with the capital or the actuary able to calculate and willing to take the risks associated with the responsibility of going through life with you. You don't have a right to say what you think, regardless of the Bill of Rights. On the job, he asked me what I thought, and I told him. He told me to do that job, and I told him what I thought of that job. Really? In Titus 2, it says, not answering again. Do you have a right to say whatever you're thinking? If it's true about someone, but it's secret and private information that would damage their character if it became public, that's whispering, backbiting, or tail-bearing. You don't have a right to say that. If you slander and tell something not true about, if you tell something that's not true about someone, you slander them, you don't have a right to say that. Can bitterness and sweetness come out of the same source, out of the same well? How can we bless God and curse men? James chapter 3. We have a member from hell in our mouths, and it defiles the whole course of nature. You do not have a right to say what you're thinking or what you want to say. I don't care what the Bill of Rights says. We've used the Bill of Rights. It was a pagan instrument of a pagan government. And we have used it as Christians because it's allowed us, along with pagans, to be able to preach. But we don't have a right to say whatever we're thinking. We have a responsibility to say words that are helpful, words that are kind, words that are good. Let your speech be all way with grace, seasoned with salt. That's our responsibility. It's not a right. It doesn't matter if you get angry. If you get angry, you've already sinned once. Why sin twice by saying something you shouldn't? Free speech, our lips are our own. That's in the Bible. Psalm 12, 4. God condemns those wicked men that said that. You'll give an answer for every idle word. We do not have a right to say whatever we want. You have a right to your own thoughts? Wrong. You're responsible for godly and good thoughts at all times. The Bible says in Proverbs 24 and verse 9, the thought of foolishness is sin. Ecclesiastes 10.20, curse not the king. No, not in my thought. Hebrews 4.12 through 14, because the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. You do not have a right to your thoughts. Let me, let me hurry up and get halfway through this. Just, just a couple minutes. A wife is not a right. A wife is a privilege that her father and her give you. And it brings responsibilities. She's my wife. I can do, I can do whatever I want to. I don't care whether you say it outside, inside, or you just act like it. No, she is not. You're right. She is a privilege. Right. Your wife is a privilege that her father gave you and that she gave you to waste her life being your wife. That is a great privilege that another person would agree to waste their life by being tied to you in holy matrimony. 
And I speak as a fool as I use that Catholic terminology for the sacrament of marriage. Marriage is not a right. You don't have a right to marry anyone because you're not worth having a spouse. It's a privilege to marry anyone, and it's a responsibility to love that anyone for the rest of your life according to God's description of how you should love them. It's a privilege to marry a girl, not a right, and then the responsibilities begin. Young men, I've tried to tell you that so many times, and all of you know that when we stand before God, I warned you before you ever got married that you were making a 50-year decision. You better be absolutely sure of yourself before you make it, because we're not going to undo it. You're just going to live up to its responsibilities. When you get married, you were supposed to take a year to cheer her up. I know that some of your wives probably needed more, but the Lord at least asked for a year. Proverbs 5.19, does this sound like a right or a responsibility? Now be very careful. I'll give, I'll give rights wherever the Lord gives them. Let her be as the loving hind in pleasant row. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times. Be thou ravished always with her love. Proverbs 5.19. Do you get more rights or more responsibilities out of that verse? Responsibilities. And why did Solomon write it in Proverbs chapter 5? For rights or responsibilities? Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wives and be not bitter against them. Sound like a right or a responsibility? Responsibility. Love your wives as even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And cher- No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Does that sound like a right or a responsibility? 1 Peter 3.7, husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life. Right or responsibility? Right to sex? You got the right to sex in your marriage? Yes, you do. I'll give it to you. You know why I have to. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. But don't go there looking for too many rights. Because all you're going to find there is responsibilities. There's a right there. But when you come out of that passage, there's going to be a responsibility. Another wife was a privilege that God granted foolish men. But it became an onerous responsibility, didn't it? If you read Exodus chapter 21 last night. If a man's got a wife... And he decides that another one would be a good thing. And the Lord allowed the privilege. The Lord allows the privilege sometimes for men to be fools. And so the Lord allowed the privilege for a man to take a second wife or a third wife or a fourth wife. But if a man took a second wife or a third wife or a fourth wife, did the Bible say that he still owed the first wife food, clothing, and the duty of marriage, and these shall not be diminished? Oh, that'd be hard. Enough said. Oh, you don't know what the duty of marriage is. That's not taking your home to see mama once a year. That's, that's taking her to see the love goddess every night or every other night. Whatever you were doing before, you had to keep up even though you took a new wife. I love the God of heaven. You want to do it your way and not my way? I made Eve for Adam. You want to do it a different way? Then hear the terms. Die. Praise the Lord. Truth is not a right. God kept, God's kept it from most men for the history of the world. Amen. Psalm 147, 19 through 20, the Bible says so plainly that these things were not known to other nations. All men have a right to truth. No, they don't. They chose a lie in Eden, and they have chosen lies since. God is holy and righteous to give them their choice. Lies. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Of all the earth's nations, God only knew Israel. Is it a right to have a relationship with God? 
It is a privilege. And he grants it to his elect. It's my right to believe and do as I want. No, it isn't. You're responsible to prove all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and only hold that which is good. You are to act only with knowledge, Proverbs 13.15, and not be a simple man and pass on and get punished. You are to only operate with prudence, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 3. And that is to have all your foolish, goofy, ridiculous ideas challenged and tore apart by a multitude of counselors. You do not have the right to believe and do what you think is cool, truth, right, or otherwise. That is operating without understanding. You do not have rights. You have responsibilities to do things God's way. And God gave us responsibilities in truth, marriage, bedrooms, houses, jobs, sex, marriage, lips, thoughts, everything. He's given us responsibilities. He has the rights. We thank him for everything he's given us. He has exercised his right to show mercy to whom he will show mercy by showing mercy to us. And he has saved us for the Lord Jesus Christ. That gives us a responsibility that all to him... I owe, as we sang in the song, Jesus paid it all. As we come, as we go out of this place today, and as we face situations in our marriage, situations in our children, situations at work, as we have to read the news of what our government is doing, make sure that you always ask, is this a right? Is it a responsibility? Is it a privilege? Is it an opportunity? What is it? What does the Lord want me to do with it? How does the Lord want me to look at it? How should I think about it, talk about it, and what should be my reaction to it? Let me do it the way the Lord said. Because God has worked in you his, the good pleasure, to do the good pleasure of His will, and, he's work, and we are supposed to work it out with fear and trembling. We want to be harmless and blameless, the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Lord, help us to learn Your mind, Your will, from Your Scriptures, so that we will think, speak, and do what you would have us to in all these relationships, obligations, and duties of life. Lord, help us to that end. We give you all the rights to our lives. We thank you for saving us. Show us your responsibilities and give us the power, strength to do them. In Jesus' name, amen.